0: Hello and welcome to the award-winning Rearview, the show where we get to chat to the fascinating people from the motoring universe, learning how they got to where they are today. I'm Andrew and this is episode 45. I'm delighted to be joined by Tom Callow, who is Director of Communications and Strategy at Chargemaster PLC. Welcome to Rearview, Tom. I'd like to start off by asking, what does the Director of Communications and Strategy at Chargemaster do?
1: But, well thanks to you for having me andrew and and very very huge congratulations to you both on the, on the award which is fantastic uh, well thank you very much it's it's a very good question um it, it's a fairly new role that charge master created um and uh, and i've been working with charge master sort of on and off for probably the last 5 years i, I first um, came across them when i was working for a pr agency and um my role is really to you know raise a, raise the a profile of charge master as a business but also to you know be an advocate for the EV sector in the UK um to obviously talk about why we think electric vehicles are uh, the best way forward for the for the motor industry and for for drivers um, and obviously on the on the strategy side also to um, think about the ways we innovate as a business so think about new uh, new technologies we might want to bring forward uh, new business models and also looking at the market so looking at how the market's developing uh, for example looking at the split between plug-in hybrids, EVs, looking at how that might impact our business. So it's quite a, a broad role, but um, you know, I get right under the skin of the business and, and um, get involved with helping to, to drive it forward.
0: Well, we'll explore that a bit later on. Uh, first of all, though, uh, as regular listeners will know, I want to go back to the dim and distant past, your dim and distant past, the history, when you first started getting interested in cars and the motoring world. Do you know when that was?
1: Well... I mean, I've I've been interested in in cars really for as long as I can as long as I can genuinely remember. And there's a there's a bit of a um, there's a bit of a sort of a tale that my mum likes to tell. And, and 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 probably some of your listeners will know that I've got a, a twin brother uh, called Ed who's also in the industry. Um, it's important mm-hmm. for the record that I state that I was working in the industry before him. That's uh, always important to state. <laughs> um, but um, but um, yeah, and uh, and there's a tale that my mum says that um, when we were we were a uh, we little tots being pushed around in a pram, she used to apparently read out, stop and read out the backs of cars. So the name badges on cars to us when we were in our pram, apparently this is the, the tale that, you know, she used to stop and say, you know, it's a voxel astral, what have you. And, um, and apparently even at a young age, we pointed at cars and asked why there was a, you know, a Toyota plastic wheel trim on a on a ford or something like that you know or something like that so so there's a there's apparently it was it was all my mum's fault so i'll blame i'll blame her
0: so this stickler for accuracy that i see on twitter it's 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 a long-standing it must
1: be yeah it must be i don't know it's clear, clearly clearly all parental uh parental blame you yeah
0: when you're going through school and stuff did you was an idea to get in the car industry then
1: or was that not even crossed your mind I th- yeah, uh, that, that you could. I think in school it was um, it was an interest, but no, I don't think I necessarily thought about um, the car industry per se. I mean, I, I always had a really interest in writing. That's where I um, sort of started from, and I, I sort of thought about going into journalism in, in, as a sort of a general profession. Um, you mm-hmm. know, when I was at school and, and sort of pursued a, a career, a, a route, so I should say, through uh, university and so on, that might, might have allowed me to do that. But um, I think it was. It was really when I was at university, I um, I stumbled upon this thing called the Guild of Motion Writers and, and the award they had that was the, uh, the Lions Award for sort of young writers who wanted to get into the sector. So that was really when I sort of started to think about, I think, the car industry and a potential job in it more seriously, I think. So that was
0: obviously uh, something that uh, drew you towards it. What... How did you then act on that? You know, what what were the next steps you took to explore that yeah. possible route? Yeah, I
1: mean, I, I, as I say, I mean, I kind of got sort of very much drawn into the into the potential of being a journalist and, and went through the sort of this uh, this thing called the Sir William Lyons Award and um, managed to to win that on my second second time of trying. Um, and I think at the you know at the time when I sort of picked up the award, I got you know a couple of people come up to me and you know say well done, and, and they happened to be. PR people, press people—you know—they happen to be, um, you know, the PR directors or PR managers for for, for OEMs. Um, one of the, one of the first people to come up to me was a, a guy who you all know called Mike Orford, um, who's now at Volkswagen, who was at at Seat at the time. And and I remember thinking, hey, these these people all seem very pleasant. I wonder what the world of PR is like. And um, and having having sort of initially thought I might want to go into journalism, I sort of gave PR a go and thought I should probably explore that first. So um went into you know into pr as a, as a as a summer placement you know asked around and got a a two a two-month placement um at the company that was then known as automotive pr in soho um and this is now the the talk agency group so um kind of had two months with them over a summer when i was still at university and the rest is history really i mean they they, they liked me i liked them uh, we got on very well and um, and i started there straight after i left university and, and had uh, about seven years seven years there kind of going up from sort of a account executive role right into, up to account director and then um, worked with huge range of brands over that time probably 20 or 30 different brands everything from um you know the big Moths like bosch and Vauxhall, um through to sort of real scrappy insurgencies there was a a scooter company that never quite made it to the uk that was going to bring electric scooters with removable battery packs that was called e-fun that was somehow spelt with four e's and then the word fun <laughs> we did we did council probably wasn't the best use of the english language but um but yeah, it was a really, really a great eye-opening experience to work with, you know, a huge variety of businesses, you know, and and you know, get under the skin of the industry and and sort of see what I liked and um, you know where my interests lay. Um, and I think you know there was a there was a, a, a again a, an area there where I kind of strayed into the, the EV world in particular, and that really sort of took my took my interest.
0: Well, this this might be something that uh, maybe members of the public didn't realize. I didn't realize until I got um, sort of onto. Twitter and things like that of it's not just the manufacturer PR that departments that do this stuff there are these uh, independent agencies that help uh, and everything so what's the sort of um, just to help educate uh, everyone including me uh, especially me perhaps uh, (laughs) what's the sort of work that these independents do then that the OEMs come to for.
1: Well, I mean, it was, to be fair, it was, there were some OEMs involved, as I say, but it it was often, um, you know, the supplier side who maybe struggled to to Mm -hmm. make their voices as as widely heard. Um, But it's really, I mean, I I think I I was a big advocate of the specialist agency, you know, the specialist automated PR agency that knows the sector, understands the issues in the automated sector, as opposed to the sort of giant PR agencies, um, you know, sort of the, you know, the sort of uh, H&Ks of this world or whatever, because I think that, Mm -hmm. that having a, you know an added value agency that you can go to for advice or you know or thoughts that knows your sector is is of is of is a significant value to the to the clients in this case so you know we we consulted you know small brands big big companies on on you know where their kind of strategy was in the industry where their communications messages were going to get through um you know they would talk to us about you know should we you know what should we be talking about at the moment we've got a new product in the you know, in the this was years ago, kind of a new diesel technology. How can we promote that? You know, it's got these many fuel savings, and 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 really sort of asking our advice on how we how they best sort of structure that message and get through to um their end audience using the media as a as an intermediary, because you know the the media was always our audience, and we were sort of trying to mm-hmm. give them the view that actually, you know, you have to explain things in a way that you know journalists understand. A lot of the time, it's engineering speak, and you know a lot of our clients didn't always understand the way you had to you know break down those messages to be able to you know to make journalists who, by 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 your nature have to be in a way jacks of all trades. You, know, you have to understand you know everything yeah. from the you know the spark plug through to a you know a type 2 plug for an ev i mean it's it's a broad it's a broad church so you know they couldn't be too um too nerdy about things and and too sort of engineering parlance so um it was about giving clients an added voice an added sort of brain on their team uh, it wasn't just about being an extra pair of hands because i think that's bit pointless if you need an extra pair of hands then then i think you should hire someone Um, but i think Mm -hmm. it was about saying well we don't have this specialism we need to kind of almost recruit your specialism in your brains your communal brains to to help us on something but um, as i say i guess i tended to work more with the supplier side and and sort of b2b space Um, Mm -hmm. and it's fascinating to see some of the you know the innovations that we all know of today you know, kind of pioneered by suppliers that most people associate, you know, like Bosch, for example, with, with other things, you know, washing machines or whatever. Yeah. Um, and, and I think a lot of the suppliers don't get the credit they're due. Um, in, in a lot of the stories you read about, you know, new cars, new technologies, actually, a lot of the time, innovations have been driven by the supplier, not the OEM. And the OEM gets to, unfortunately, get a little take take a lot of credit for them.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, we're seeing that uh, changing slightly, I'd suggest, or maybe it's because I'm more aware. But with uh, things like the uh, autonomous uh, technology, but also uh, EV technology, uh, you're hearing more about the names of the suppliers as opposed to just the OEMs, which uh, which is a good thing because it helps it helps us all understand how how many different companies are involved to get a vehicle on the road, and how many different companies are involved to get the technology that we, as you say, we have become. To a certain degree, some of it very blasé, and just expect it. Yeah, but you know, some somebody somewhere has had to develop and work at that, and then work out how to communicate that across, get the message out that people go, well, actually, that's a great idea. Let's let's have a bit of that, please. Um So, so yeah. So what you're saying is then that you are acting like consultants as opposed to um, another. Desk in the PR department. Yeah, you. Yes, absolutely. The OEMs or the or the or the supplier. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah. I mean, obviously, there's other agencies that do things like event. Yeah, they they, they specialize in maybe events or, uh, you know, kind of things that are more akin to what people might call a PR stunt, for example. But it was more about being a, you know, being a specialist brain that they could almost recruit or a team of brains they could recruit and bring into their business on on a, on a temporary or or frankly semi permanent basis in some in some cases to work with them mm-hmm. for several years to you know to advise them and to you know to, to act as a bit of continuity so it was it was definitely more of a consultancy than an agency in that sense um, and I, and I think there's a lot of there's a lot of value in that for, for businesses that maybe you know they, they might have people in marketing or PR roles in house who who aren't actually that familiar with the automotive sector um i mean mm. you know there are, there are a lot of suppliers out there who do not just automotive things you know they they might be in the automotive space but they might also be in the aviation sector or they might also be in the you know the general engineering sector so having having the ability to recruit you know automotive um, specialists who who know the industry, who've been in the industry for you know decades of experience, um, is 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 really valuable. So um, so it was it was fascinating. As, as I say, I mean, I think um, you know, it's a it, it's, you know, it's an, it's a it's a fascinating sort of area to be involved in. It's a it's a, you know, it, it enlightened me to the I guess that world of sort of added value advice um i think a lot of people you know as soon as i said i worked in pr you know kind of associated me with you know the worst of the pr beings out there the, the max cliffords of this world and so on. And actually it was it wasn't about that at all it was you know about giving giving the truthful view of how things are and and of course you're always going to focus on the positives rather than the negatives if you're representing a, a brand or a company but um but obviously it's not it's not about lying it's just that you you clearly need to tell a positive story and if someone wants to to dig around for the negative angle, they're very welcome to you, but that's not the that's not the role of the PR.
0: Did that give you a, a better understanding of of the automotive world by having to get in? You know, you you you're involved in stuff now. How how early would a company typically bring you on? Say they've got, uh, I, I'm I'm grasping at straws here, but say they they've found this new technology of uh, battery charging for for the sake sure. of argument, just just for the sake of argument how typically how early in the process of them developing and ready to bring it to market would they involve yourselves
1: well pretty early on i mean i think as i say I mean, most of the people i worked with we, we worked with for years rather than you know months it was it was more of a long-term relationship so um a, a lot of the time you you were you're involved in these businesses um you had been involved with them for years and you almost saw the developments coming down the pipeline as it were um if it was more of a project basis, yeah, I think I think businesses would reach out to you maybe when they had an idea of where to go and, and and thought they would be coming out with innovation and wanted to kind of almost, I guess, bring you in at an early stage to to try and get your thoughts on how to maybe how to launch it, how to talk about it. Um, I think you know there's a there's a there's a there's a good sort of reason to to again approach sort of businesses like that where you're not a specialist in maybe PR and not specialist in you know, automotive media and, and and who are the who are the most influential people to talk to and who aren't, um to bring it bring a company like that in. But it, it did certainly working for that variety of clients, you know, broadened my knowledge of, you know, the component supply chain in the industry, um, you know, the kind of the different technologies that are out there. I mean my I think my E V interest particularly kind of stemmed, to be honest, from before my, my sort of going into an agency, to be honest. Um but yeah, it certainly it certainly showed me the breadth of the industry and and, and I met a lot of really interesting you know characters along the way
0: so you were there for seven years yeah did you yes. say
1: yeah
0: and how recent is that from today when you finish there
1: so that's sort of two and a half or so years ago um okay. yeah so I, I i spent a couple of years uh, working for a, a business called cox automotive some people sort of know it as Mannheim, um and um and then and then joined chargemaster um sort of back in the spring
0: what did you do at cox automotive stroke manheim
1: so i again i was went in-house there that was my first sort of experience of an in-house role um mm. so i was their head of external communications and so you got a proper desk and everything i got well actually I, well, a, hot, a, hot, a, hot, a hot desk a hot desk i was um i was uh oh, okay. again I'm, i know uh, a lot of people will know me not the cox automotive head head, uh, head office is based up in leeds and i, I live down south so I was uh, I was spending a lot of time on the uh, on the M1 particularly uh, trekking up like and forth. You. I know, I know, it's brilliant. So uh, I had desks all <laughs> over the country at the services and all sorts. Um, so yeah, it was a, it was a great a great great business to be involved in. Uh, and you know, i um, you know, I think they're a fascinating company. You know, Cox was Motor is a global firm. You know, multi billion dollar turnover. Um, you know, it does a it's got as, a, as an enterprise. It was founded by a guy called Governor James Cox. Who um, was an unsuccessful presidential Democratic presidential candidate uh, back in the day? Um, who, who then bought a newspaper after he failed to win the presidency, and then started a media business, then started a telecoms business, and then uh, the automotive business was founded a bit more recently. So it's a, a huge, amazing empire that was built up over decades and decades. Um, and um, yeah, just fascinating global business to be involved in. So that was a that was a real insight into again the kind of the sorts of you know, the relationships between a, a huge sort of, you know, US-based business and its various outposts across Europe, including obviously in the UK, um, you know, got again, sort of got to meet some hugely inspirational people within that business. Um, you know, their global leader, Sandy Schwartz, he's, you know, um, built a, an enormous, you know, amount of um, sort of credibility in the sector for that business. Um, and I think, you know, I, I enjoy working with businesses like that, that that are sort of fairly complex but have, you know great values and and really kind of have a very clear direction about where they're going um mm. because it gives you great confidence in the message because you know that everyone is behind that message um you know rather than sort of a business that's slightly confused and doesn't really know where it's going to be in the next five years yeah yeah that helped.
0: so what were the sort of things you were doing there then
1: well i, I think you know again raising its profile with particularly the trade media i mean um, Cox okay. Automotive went, yeah, was, was a brand that didn't exist in the UK um, you know, two years ago, two, two and a bit years ago um, it was in the UK business was effectively a, a group of independent car auctions um, that, were, that were built up over time that of brought together into a group um, the US firm Mannheim, uh, which is not anything to do with Mannheim in Germany, but um, it's named after Mannheim, Pennsylvania, where their, where their largest auction centre is um, mm-hmm. uh, effectively acquired um, some years ago, acquired the UK, those UK independent car auctions, um, created Mannheim UK as an auction network that then sort of bolted on extra businesses that it thought would be valuable to to car dealers and others in the sector um, to create this kind of overall automotive group, really automotive service group, um, and you know that changed from being kind of Mannheim car auctions with a few bolt-ons to being this you know this overall automotive service business that does digital retail, you know online. Retail after-sales solutions and so on was was something that needs to be communicated very carefully because it was potentially a very confusing message to say, well, we're you know, transforming from a car auction business. to something that's broader than that. But I think I think it was successful. I think a lot of people, you know, really got their heads around, you know, what Cox Automotive was all about and you know what what it could offer. I guess that sort of car dealer and, and fleet and leasing community. Were there
0: um, you know as the US the parent company is US based? Were there ever any cultural issues? with it being sort of like a fresh company as well or did the business model just generally sort of neutralize any potential issues that way
1: um i don't i don't remember any sort of specific issues in that sense i mean the what i would say is just the u.s i mean the u.s was by far and away the you know the largest market and we're talking kind of you know you know their their sort of events budget would sort of dwarf dwarf a significant portion of the uk turnover, for example so <laughs> um, that was the real eye opener when you'd go to a US trade show with them like the, the NADA show the North American Dealer Association show and and see you know their presence there which was kind of a small village you know um whereas whereas mm-hmm. obviously in the UK our, our trade show presence might have been a, a fairly sizable stand you know theirs was a there's was theirs was a you know huge construction you know millions of pounds of of expense every year so it was seeing the scale was was quite incredible but i don't think we ever sort of um you know came to any uh, came to any kind of um Loggerheads on anything. Um, I think my general observation is it's, it, there are those cultural differences between different sort of markets and, and firms in different markets. I think um, you get a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of drive. I've seen it out of a lot of US-based businesses. I think I've, I've worked with a lot of German-based firms as well, and I think for some reason there tends to be this caution. There tends to be a lot of kind of you know, cautious business behavior, um, a lot of uh, you know, sort of very methodical thinking, Maybe more risk averse, which obviously can can be a good thing. Uh, I think it can also yeah. slow you down as well. So I think it's it is it's been interesting again from from an agency point of view, and, and then working in house with a uh, with a US based fan to see that sort of difference between you know the, the cultural differences between how different countries' businesses work. I suppose it's it's a you know I think the UK's got a nice balance. I think we we we, we you know we're, we we tend to I think develop businesses in this country that that have a really good global outlook because we we can't survive. You know, usually by by building businesses that only look look inwardly in the UK, we need to build businesses that look outwards. Yeah, no, I totally agree.
0: Before we go on to ChargeMaster, though, uh, I'd like to go back through your car history.
1: Oh, dear, it's not very it's not very long, but go for it.
0: <laughs> so, uh, what age were you when you passed your test?
1: Uh, I was seventeen. I was seventeen. Yeah, yeah. Okay, And a couple of days or seventeen. Oh no, I, I, no, I, t- I took my time. I mean, I, I, I got okay. my licenses. I mean, I got my provisional license as soon as I, uh, I turned seventeen, and I, I didn't do a crash course. I sort of, you know, I did my full sort of thirty hours or whatever it was behind the wheel over over a few months. Drove in winter, drove in summer, um, and I think I, I think I passed my test about a month before my eighteenth birthday. I think. Okay, so you, you, you prepped it well. Yeah, I think I. I, I yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I think crash courses are a bit. I think crash course have an unfortunate name. I'm not. Su- I'm not sure you. I'm not sure you can really learn to drive in a week. You might be able to pass your test in a week. I'm not sure whether you really learn to drive, say.
0: Yeah, I, 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 that's that's something that always comes to me about the whole uh, learning to drive experience. Unless you take a, a really long time, I don't think any of us mm. really learn. We we learn, as you say, we learn the, the very much the basics and how to pass, but. Beyond that, we don't get it. We don't get exposed to all the different circumstances because we generally don't make as many mistakes as we do when we've, we're out there, when there isn't somebody possibly pressing a pedal yeah. in their footwell
1: or yeah, no, absolutely screaming
0: yeah. or grabbing the steering wheel or something yeah. like that. Well, I've often this, wondered whether
1: you know you, you, you should go down the route of you know, sort of what pilots have to do and you know build up a certain number of hours behind the wheel. Maybe that should be how all of our insurance has worked out and what have you.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, that that makes I I like that. I mean, and constant retraining, I think, would be a good thing. Mm. Um, uh, but uh, no, we, we I don't think we'll ever fix that one. Um, okay, so did you have a car lined up straight away after you passed, or was it one of the parents' cars? I
1: I did. Yeah, well, I I bought a car as I was learning, basically, and I learned in it in, okay. in it sort of as supplementary lessons. Yeah, so I bought a little Polo um, petrol Polo one point three um sort of the the 6n model so it was i think it was an m, m plate um and mm-hmm. it's uh it's it's i think at the end of its life it got crushed for crushed for cancer research i think through give a car which is a fantastic uh, charity that that takes unwanted vehicles that are sort of no longer fit for the roads and either either obviously if they if they are sort of a bit fit fit for the road they can give them to people and if they're not they uh, they crush them and the, and the money raised goes to goes to charity which is a great idea
0: mm, that is i hadn't heard of that one okay excellent um so how long did you have have the polo for uh, oh that's a very good question um
1: so i think i bought it in 2003 um when did it and it, it, it i think it got crushed at some point when i was working in london and finished university so um oh, that must have been sort of probably probably about six years in total i think something like that i think it, i think i sort of bought it and it had about 50 odd thousand miles on the clock and i think when it got when it went to the scrapper, I think it had about 130,000 on the clock. So it got it got a nice amount of mm. nice amount of use every year. I think. Do you feel they were particularly hard miles on it, or were you a gentle owner? Um, I, I, I think I, 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 think I probably, you know, made it work a bit. I don't think they were particularly hard. I mean, a lot of them motorway because I, I went to university up in, uh, up at University of Warwick in uh, in Coventry. Uh, famously, mm. it isn't in Warwick, which uh, a lot of international students who go to Warwick University, It's got one of the biggest international student populations of any university and. Every year they flock over, they find Heathrow, they get on the train, they go to Warwick, and they get out at Warwick Station and say, where's the university? And every year, Warwick University has to lay on a fleet of about 60 coaches that all they do for about three days is shuttle people from Warwick Station to, to the Coventry campus because no one knows where the University of Warwick is. But um, I lived down in live uh, my parents lived down in Kent, and, and I was sort of trotting up in my car to and fro from Kent to, to Warwick frequently. So that was, that, was my, that was my car's life for much of its, uh, much of its use.
0: Mm. And what did you move on to after the Polo?
1: So I, I mean, I, I, um, I was the the millennial, as people love to call them, I suppose. I, I lived in London, I worked in London, and I didn't really need a private car. So I um I joined Zipcar, um, and I, I, okay. I must have done fifteen thousand miles in Zipcars over a couple of years, um, when I was living in London, um, and and that was my my car in inverted commas. I mean, I I think it was a great model and still is, um, as sort of that sort of you know car club ownership model where actually there's plenty of people that don't need a car and and i I think if i still lived in sort of zone one or whatever i lived in london zone two i possibly still wouldn't have a car um i think it's you know i i do think you know when particularly sort of person when people talk about electric vehicles and say well there's you know 40 percent of people that don't have off street parking that um you know evs might be a problem for i always sort of make the point that actually there's an awful lot of that 40 percent that actually don't have a car anyway so they're kind of Slightly irrelevant from the EV discussion.
0: Mm, well, actually, talking of that, I I do want to uh, run through some of your favourite myths about EVs later sure. on, actually, and see see if we can burst a few um, because there's a few out yeah, there.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, I was a Zipcar a Zipcar member for. For many, many years. Um, and then, um, so, so with that, it was a, a
0: subscription based model. You Do you pay monthly or annually or something? Like it that? was, yeah. Or, I mean, or... it,
1: for, I think at one point I had a personal membership and then I had a company membership as well through, uh, through my agency. We had a sort of corporate zip memberships. we use them for, for work, work trips as well, which was really useful for people that lived in London. Um, and yeah, it was a subscription model. So, you know, monthly subscription pay per hour, um, you know, fuel card in the car, so all inclusive, um, uh, I mean as I, as I sit here speaking to you now Andrew I'm sat in my car using it as a nice sound beast, and I'm I'm parked in at a charging bay and there's a zip car in front of me and it's currently being washed and valeted by a member of the zip car crew so there you go it's sort of in action uh, care going on of these uh, of these cars that are pumped all over London
0: yeah I, I can see the I can see how this would work particularly for people who live in the city um, Anyone who's mm. listened to our new show will know that we do we do uh, discuss different models and stuff, but with the whole future business models and stuff like this, there are a few of the the statements that come out that I I sit there and I think that's come from somebody who doesn't really understand what people do with their cars or want to do with their cars. See so yeah, that that the whole the zip car one makes sense to me, mm. but the, the the one that really I'm really confused with and I don't think will take off is this um this one we'll to we'll talk about uh shared mobility as in there will be lots of people different there'll be different passengers in the same car that sort of shared mobility I don't see how that's gonna work because none of us like to share anything unless unless the price point is so low
1: yeah i mean it was it was it was interesting i um I was a I was at a, a sort of event in London fairly recently at an engineering consultancy, um, and it was a, a sort of an audience with type thing. Uh, and, and there were sort of four of us on the stage, including the, uh, the Right Honourable Robert Llewellyn. And, um, and we were all talking about kind of electric cars and, <laughs> and, and particularly electric cars in cities, actually. Um, and it was astonishing. There was a, there was a town planner there who said um, who sort of raised this point towards the end. And she said, um, you know, she got very up in arms and said, "I can't believe that you're all talking about electric cars as if they're going to be some kind of benefit to cities she said there's still cars and i said Mm. yeah you know kind of what's what's sorry what's your what's your point there and she said well we have to get rid of cars um and i think that is the view of particularly you know cities well i think the the, um unfortunately there are you know there are a lot of people that want to see the private car you know completely um you know completely got rid of And and i think that's completely unrealistic i i think um i think for as long as you know, as long as vehicles exist in any format, I think people will want, certain people will want to, to have private ownership of those vehicles will want to have private usage of those vehicles. And I think they should be entitled to do so to, to, you know, to, to, the, to the fair extent that, um, you know, that they, that they can have. Um, I think there's a, you know, it's about personal mobility. Once you've given people personal mobility, it's very hard to take it back. It's, it's a bit like giving allowing everyone to have an iPhone. You know, I mean, if you if you allow people to have personal mobile phones, you know, in 20 years, we're we suddenly going to say that, you know, the airwaves you know can't cope with all the data that we're using. And therefore, we all have to start sharing iPhones and we have kind of communal iPhone shops where we all go to use our phones. I mean, it's, I think it's it's a very slippery slope, but I don't think we're ever going to get rid of the private vehicle, um, whether that's a car or something else. Um, I think I do think in, in cities, though, I think we could see models like you see in places like China where you have very limited private car ownership allowed you maybe have licenses to own a private car in certain cities Um, in certain Mm -hmm. zones in certain cities you might say you know you physically aren't allowed to own a car if you don't have one of these expensive permits Um, you know we could see that and I think that's almost you know if if there's people out there worrying about you know they don't like the idea of electric cars and they live in a city and they're not going to go for them well to be honest you, you might not be allowed any kind of car um, you know, in, in in a decade or two's time, you know, it might be the case that cities just start start effectively banning, banning cars outright um, unless they are maybe um, communal use vehicles or, or something like that. Yeah,
0: I, it's an interesting point on the, the something I've uh, thought about as well is the is is that are cities actually the power now rather than governments? Are governments reacting to what cities are doing because cities are thinking that the governments aren't moving quick enough or fast enough because people are living, you know, if, if we look recently, there's obviously a very big noise about air quality at the moment um, across all major cities mm. uh, and you hear statements come out from uh, a a group of, of international cities that say, right, from this date, we will be banning these type of cars or these type of vehicles Um I wonder whether the cities actually have the power now, uh, and the governments are paying, playing a little bit of catch-up, or just thinking, well, they've got it covered, so we don't really need to worry too much.
1: Well, I think, yeah, I mean, I think there's probably a bit of that in terms of you know um, uh, not wanting to intervene, you know, and, and, and sort of allowing cities to kind of get on with it in the way they want to. Um, I think we probably do need a level of consistency where you know uh, there are cities that maybe take best practice from each other um i think Mm. it it would be quite you know slightly confusing and a bit divisive if you if you had sort of massively different policy within within cities across the uk and it would send sort of strange messages to um to to people that live there and elsewhere um but yeah i I think you're going
0: oh i can drive my car into nottingham but i can only take it within 50 miles of London. but then i need to park i can go into zone two of bristol and uh, you know it's all these you know people just stop traveling at that point yeah yeah <laughs> just go forget it which may be what what you know there, there are certain elements I, I agree with what you were saying before about um there are uh, plenty of elements involved in regulation and legislation that just don't want the car i remember having many conversations on twitter when the uh toxicity charge came out uh, and the view was just basically no, the car needs to go, and it was like, mm. but that's not realistic. No, it just needs to go, and it, and it was like, oh wow, I'd I've, I've never come across that sort of adamant position before on on something that seemed like, well, we need to hold a conversation. No, no, it's just, that's it. There is no conversation. It's just that that needs to happen yeah this will help start Uh, that and you sort of go wow that makes it hard i don't
1: i think i think it's i think that's possibly a a tactic to almost sort of you know maybe force the issue with with regards to things like electrification say well if you're not going to embrace electrification then you will have to accept the demise of the car kind of thing i think it's a bit of a dramatic viewpoint um Mm -hmm. i think ultimately i think there's there's two there's two issues aren't there there's the environment and there's congestion you know you can have incredible congestion and zero zero emissions because you could have you know pure electric cars driving everywhere and have no no emissions issues, but you could have phenomenal congestion issues. So yeah. so I think it's a case of what what policy objective are you trying to achieve, and then looking at the ways to achieve it. I mean, you can argue the congestion charge is actually, I mean, I don't, I don't actually have the numbers to hand, but I mean, my, my anecdotal feedback as someone that does drive into London occasionally, um, is that the congestion charge hasn't necessarily done a huge amount to reduce congestion, um, and because the vehicle, you know, particularly with the private hire space, I mean, you've seen the private hire sector explode in London. I mean, I was I was in a, mm. I was actually in an Uber recently and, and the drive even the driver said you know i don't drive into i try not to drive into london anymore because there are too many you know of us in inverted commas of, of private hire taxis and, and tax you know, i mean black taxis are fairly well controlled but the private hire markets you know absolutely exploded and i think you know all of those vehicles are driving around completely exempt from the congestion charge so uh, and they're not all bluntly they're not all you know <laughs> they're not all pure electric cars so um yeah. and most of them aren't so i think the point is that you know if you want to solve congestion then sort of put policies in place that solve congestion but um i think there's there's a way to go on the emissions front that we can actually achieve great things on um and then you know if congestion is still an issue then then figure out a way to tackle congestion if you think that's still a problem i suppose
0: yeah it does uh, I, i do get i suppose we all get it but i really get frustrated by the it looks like there's just like level one thinking. They haven't thought beneath the initial reaction. And so it's like, Oh, well, we'll put a charge on it. That'll stop people driving. No, well you see it won't necessarily. And are you disadvantaging certain proportions of society because they have no choice mm-hmm. but to drive in say a, an older car? They're not typically doing it out of choice. You know, they just can't afford something newer so that you're penalizing them and, and blah, blah, blah. So what, if you're talking about air quality, well, how do, another way to improve air quality is to reduce the traffic, and that reduces congestion. So why aren't we encouraging ways to reduce traffic mm. working from home, using public transport, or, you know, whatever it is. But there just seems... The, no one seems to be thinking holistically about it all. And I don't want to get all dirt gently, but... No. <laughs> well, it's but, true, and I, and I think the it, other... this sort of thought needs to be brought into these things. Otherwise, we're just going to have... You know, it's a, a similar problem that we did from early two thousands. The dash for diesel. Oh no, diesels are awful, and you know we might get might get ourselves into a similar situation where people are think they are helping the situation, but they're not.
1: That, I think that's a fair point. Um, what I would say is, you know, it, it has to be about. Um, you know tackling the problems that actually exist so for example as you, as you yeah. say just putting a charge in with loads of exemptions is not necessarily going to solve the problem whereas actually you know i can see you know big areas of london becoming potentially pedestrianized i can see at some point and we're not talking near future necessarily but i can see into the distant future you know the idea of licensed car ownership coming in in places like london and you know, but but to do that, you'd have to, you know, and you you mentioned public transport. Well, the, the issue with most public transport isn't it's not really public; it's actually private. It's it's privately owned public transport, inverted commas, um, that frankly is is not cost effective for a lot of people to use. Um, I mean, I yeah. the reason I, I go to London fairly infrequently now, probably you know once a fortnight maybe, and I often I often drive in. You know, I've got an electric car, I drive into London, and and one of the reasons I do that is frankly it's far more cost effective for me to do so rather than taking a you know, 25, 30 pound um, train, um, you know, followed by cheap fares and so on and so forth, um, rather than sort of the cost of electricity to drive into London. And even even with parking is, is, is at least half that, if not, if not less. So, you know, if you're going to make public transport almost mandatory and sort of force people out of cars, and you have to do something about the costs of public transport and democratise it and make it far, far more cost effective to use
0: and the other danger is that this is also focused on uh, on london um,
1: absolutely.
0: because it is the, the you know the major city that people outside of that area do feel marginalized and not listened to and things like that particularly if if uh, policies or ideas that are actually very practical for london are then just picked up and dumped somewhere else where it it's not practical so absolutely hopefully people who think about things will really think about things <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um anyway sorry we've I've, I've taken you right off topic here uh so zipcar um have you gone back to car ownership after zipcar
1: i did um i did very uh i did very briefly for about a year so i um i got a mark 1 tt uh, T 5 uh, when i was again living sort of for, it's still in london but sort of south london a little bit further out um, and sort of decided I'd, I'd i'd get a car for a while because we uh, predominantly actually because i was I was going to be going house hunting that year, and knew I'd probably need a set of wheels to get out house hunting. I thought if I'm going to buy mm. going to buy a car, then I might as well buy one that I can enjoy a bit. So, um, so I did that for a year, and um, and then I, I flogged it. So it's currently and how was it though? I really enjoyed it. I think it, I think that it's funny. I think the Mark One TT got a lot of stick. I mean, it was obviously incredibly um, you know revolutionary in terms of design when it came out. And um, yeah, I mean, there's a guy that works at, at the Talk Group. Uh, now Peter Haynes, uh, who was a journalist at Autocar when it came out, you know, he he said to me, you know, that was the one car that he remembers Autocar driving around Teddington, and you know, everyone's jaw dropping, you know, when he was driving around the, the streets, you know, it was so different that everyone mm-hmm. stared at it because it was just so 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 strange looking and and sort of you know so incredibly different from whatever else was on the road. And I think... Uh,
0: but also for Audi.
1: Oh, absolutely. A- absolutely. And I think... Um,
0: not just, not just. I mean, that, that was just... A, it was just such a different-looking car. Yeah. But, but, I mean, for Audi to bring
1: it out as yeah, well. Yeah, I agreed. In, in a, I, I, I absolutely see where you're coming from. And I think, um, you know, it obviously got um, a, f- a little bit of stick at the time. I think a lot of people, you know, associated it, uh, you know, had, a, had a, an opinion on the TT and, you know, sort of thought it wasn't a particularly mm. good sports car and thought, you know, it was a bit, uh, you know... Uh, sort of wouldn't be seen dead in it all these kind of views and actually now it's funny i mean the number of people that i know who want one or are thinking about one and actually now look back at the design and think crikey that really hasn't dated that badly at all now and no it's, it's aged um, very well i think absolutely and i and i you know i i, I having sold mine i'm almost tempted to buy it back um so uh <laughs> lucky i know i know who's got it so um yeah i i i, I loved it and um you know it's it, of course it's not you know is it the best sports car in the world? No, but I think the blend of sort of design and and you know practicality. I mean, one of the reasons I bought it was actually that you could, yeah, you, know, you could absolutely you know jam pack the boot with all sorts of things. I mean, I took home a swivel chair in the boot once, broken down into bits. You know, with the seats down, it's a hugely practical car. Um, mm. And um, yeah, so anyway, well, you're beginning to sound like Alan and his MX-5. Yeah. You'd, you'd be surprised yeah, at how yeah, much you could yeah. really squeeze in. Yes, Alan, but, as long um, as you don't need to see anywhere. Well, I've, I, and I thought it could, you know, <laughs> hey, it might make an interesting EV conversion. So. I, I might even start scaping out the the conversion cost of uh, of whacking some batteries in it and making it sort of a you know a, an EV an EVTT. I don't know. We'll see.
0: Well, I see that as a as a market that will will definitely explode. Is conversion? Um, you know, you, you look at a lot of uh, older you know, classics and in inverted mm. commas, they just seem ripe for it. They really do. Uh, you know, have the Having driven an electric vehicle um, for a few days, just the the way that you drive, or I I was ended up driving the EV, was very much like older cars, whereas you're you are trying to do it in a more relaxed manner. It's not snatching the the accelerator, the brake and everything. And the, we got into the habit of coasting and things like that, mm. which you used to do. Uh, I remember my... My first car. That's things I used to do. I mainly to eke out the petrol because, <laughs> because I would <laughs> driven it so hard. to go, oh look, the the needle's down again. Right, I need to drive sensibly again. Mm. <laughs> um, but it, it's those. It just and and it just it just seems that that is a market that would really uh, that is is ripe for. I know there are companies out there that do it, but is ripe for people taking advantage of
1: yeah i i, um, I think you're probably right i mean I, th- I think it could be you know it could be the the car version of the barn conversion you know um you know mm. it became very fashionable you know ever wanting a barn conversion um you know modern modern living in a in an old sort of building um yeah i think so yeah they're quite a You know, i mean anyone i think that's driven an ev you know who's uh, sort of quite open-minded will, will sort of admit the fact that the performance is you know in obviously not every single electric vehicle but in many is is you know, is is pretty good. I think the you know, the driving experience they offer is is quite compelling. So I think um, they are they are potentially going to take off in that market for certain vehicles. Um, you know, mm. I think you will see a lot of people thinking, well, I still want my classic and actually, you know, having it electrified might actually I mean if they if they really potentially want to you know eke out all of the sort of idiosyncrasies of, of a you know an old school you know petrol engine or something in a four speed gearbox fine. But actually if they don't it's quite a it might make the car more enjoyable um Mm. to almost retrofit it but yeah i I think it's a i'm not sure i think there's going to be an increasing number of people offering those kind of conversions and actually once the prices come down on things like kind of you know aftermarket battery packs and so on i think um you know you could you could probably you know do a conversion for the same price as a as almost a a restoration with a with a new engine and so on so yeah it'll be interesting to see
0: okay so then after the tt you've now gone I presume you're working at Chargemaster at this point. Yeah, and
1: so – uh, well, actually, I, was, I wasn't, was but um, I, I sort of – because I got a company car, that was the – it was like one of those old auto trader ads you saw, you know, company car forces sale. Um, so, <laughs> yes. uh, so yeah, it was a case of com- company car. There wasn't really justification to, to hang on to the TT. And, and to be honest, the insurance costs in London were were a little bit silly. So I think that's the main reason why I thought I can't really bear another year of ownership, to be honest. Um, so, yeah, I've mm. got, got a, com- well, a, a selection of, uh, of short-term hire cars, then my, my long-term company car, and now I've got the the i3 um, that, I, that I drive in my current job. And how do you find that? I, I love it. I think it's one of the best, uh, genuinely speaking, I think the best all-round smallish vehicles you can buy. You know, it seats four, four adults comfortably. You can whack 100 miles of electric range out of it every day of the week. You know I mean I've got the range extender, I think I've done fourteen thousand so you've got the flap of shame. I've right? got the flap of shame. No, isn't yeah. that what is technically yeah. called? Uh, yes. I didn't know that, but you've enlightened me now. Andrew. Um, I think the uh, you know I've done as say about fourteen thousand miles in what five months and and I think one hundred and fifty of those might have been on the range extender. so you know it's convinced me that you can you know as long as the car's probably got one hundred and fifty miles of electric range, I could probably make it work you know in my use to be honest. Mm, um and yeah. you know i'm convinced my next car will be a pure ev um so it's you know it's a great all-round vehicle and then you know the performance is great everyone i you know everyone who has a go in it drives it gets some passenger ride in it thinks that you know it's it's insanely quick you know and again these aren't people that you know drive Porsche 911s all day or whatever they're, they're people that mm. you know the average consumer this is this is this is a quick car for the average consumer it might not be in yeah. the uh in the high lofty world of uh, automotive journalism, but um, but yeah, for the average person, it, it feels like a nice, quick car. It's yeah, I, I love I love uh, I love driving it. I think it's a great a great kind of proposition. Um, but there's there's a huge amount of really exciting electric cars coming to market. I think the the new Leaf, for example, is going to be an absolute game changer.
0: Yeah, uh, well, I I think the when they announced the Zoe with the with the huge range, mm. you know, and this is inverted commerce. I was thinking just that well, at that point, that it makes it if someone's looking for a new car, and they've and that's their sort of the the money they've got, right. then it it almost makes it a no-brainer yeah. to be able to do two hundred miles. I mean, we we went round UK with a Hyundai Ionic, and we were the first day we were struggling to get to I think we were we doing just over a hundred miles, but then as we went through and learnt more of how to drive it. Um, it was a. We were more than confident if the destination was 140 miles. Yeah, because we knew we'd make it. Because we adapted to yeah. the, the 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 style, and it's not like we were sticking about either. We were on motorways. We were, at, you know, at national speed limits on A and B roads. Yeah. So you know, we weren't milk floating it or anything. Absolutely <laughs> no. The good I mean, old I think days. I think
1: we the, the thing we're getting to now is where you know we all know that there are people out there who do you know quite often do 400 miles in a day and say look apart from a tesla there's not really an EV out there for me quite yet but actually the you know we've got to remember the vast majority of people don't do that and you know the average Mm -hmm. what average journey distance is something like seven miles the average daily mileage is about 26 25 miles a day so we're getting to the point now where frankly the evs that we're seeing come to market are you know aren't just capable of doing someone's daily mileage quite happily they're actually quite quite capable of doing a lot of people's weekly mileage so all of that stuff about you know when are I going to charge it? I mean, yeah, we've got plenty of people that we know who, who don't have off-street parking and still manage to knock out 15,000, 20,000 miles a year using the public charging networks because you might only have to charge it once a week you know, on, on a rapid mm. charger. So, yeah. so that's, that's the level of, of EV we're getting to now. And I think it, it will be dramatic you know, for a lot of people in terms of how much, it, how much change it creates.
0: Well, we, when we were driving around, we bumped into a chap who also had an a, uh, uh, ionic electric mm and he he ditched his Audi A8 TDI mm. for it because it cost him less and he could still do the mileage and he was his commutes with we saw we met him at Perth mm. and he he was from around there his regular weekly commutes were down to Kent and back again yeah and he said it was it's no problem yeah and it was it was from him that we got a lot of tips on what to do and how to set it up and how to how to take best advantage of driving an EV mm. Uh, and it—it it was very minimal changes you make. Uh, I don't—I don't know if you found that yourself, but we found it was very minimal changes in how we approached it and how we we went around things. Yeah, and it made it, it made such a huge difference. Um, but I, I think what you were saying there before is, yeah, people, and, and this was this was this was something that we thought was the case when before we went on the trip that people overestimate how much they they use a car. Absolutely, yeah and or they're keeping it for the uh two weeks in the summer where they drive the other end of the country and back again and yep. not realizing it's still practical to do that
1: yeah i i totally agree i mean i think that you know it is possible to drive long range in an ev you know, m- most people the irony is mo- most the, the loudest voices that that, te- that say that evs aren't there yet and, and so on are the people that don't have one and haven't ever really tried to use one you know they, they might, mm. they're people who might have had one test drive or have you know, had one bad experience, and I think even EV owners, you know, there are EV owners out there who have no doubt had maybe you know one or two bad experiences with with the charging network potentially. But actually, that's that's just a, that's just the case that as the market's you know growing, um, you know, the the availability and the proliferation of infrastructure will improve as well. And actually, you won't. It's it's a bit like you know the metaphor, the analogy I use. Is basically, it's a bit like going to a petrol station where you arrive and it's closed because the petrol tank tanker ref, refilling it. You know, it's yeah. not. In, it, you know, no one, no one breaks down and says, "Oh, it's terrible today. I went to a petrol station and there was a petrol tanker, you know, refilling there, so I couldn't fill up. So it was a disaster, and I'm never going to drive in a petrol car." What you simply do is go to the next petrol station. You know, go to the other yeah. one that you know. Of. And I think as the deployment of infrastructure improves and we have more of it, and we will have a lot more of it. You know, you know, ten tenfold more probably within the next five years is is it actually it just won't be an issue because you know, I mean, I for example was um, I took my i3 up to Lake District you know, a couple of months ago and. Drove up. We have got a rapid charger just off the M40 um, near Warwick. Went to that one. There was a guy on it who got down to about 10%. So he was going to be there for a while. And I simply drove down the road to another one of ours that was six miles away. And that that will be how it is in the future. You know, it won't it won't be this big disaster scenario where people say, well, it was the only rapid charger within you know 20 or 30 miles. It it just won't won't be an issue. You know, we'll, we'll get much more infrastructure out there over the, over the over time to kind of keep pace with the market. And you know, it will it will become as 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 normal and and, and sort of trouble-free as driving you know for everyone is driving a petrol or diesel car and it already is for, for many of us i mean I, you know as i say i'm 14,000 miles now and i genuinely can't remember a significant sort of charging issue that i've had
0: we had problems on the uh, first stroke second day end of the first day start the second day nothing to do with your um i want to make it very clear nothing to do with charge masters network by the way for everybody listening it was not it was a different network different chargers. um but from that experience, we quickly learned, right, what you do is you're making sure that you know what plan B and C is in case there is an issue. Yeah. And, it's, and, and usually yeah. plan B and C is fairly close. Or if not, you, you work your – for us, it was easy because we, we didn't have a really set route, so we could move wherever we needed to go to get the mm. – we needed the rapid charges because we, we were trying to do so many miles in a day. But if we, if we didn't need the rapid – Charges, then it was even less of a problem
1: yeah and
0: that was then and i know the infrastructure's improved since then. yeah i mean uh, you guys have uh, announced in, in the last week two sets of uh, last week of recording so maybe it's changed by the time this goes out uh, but you know two two big announcements for um increase in the infrastructure one was in if i remember this correctly nottinghamshire yeah and the other one is lancashire which brings a, a smile to me. Hopefully, there might <laughs> yeah, be one yeah. within, yeah, more than one within seven miles of my house. <laughs> yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and as, as I say, you know, at the moment, um, it might be that people doing those longer distances do do have to, you know, do want to think about you know plan B and C or whatever, just just in, in the just in case environment. But as I say, I think you know it, it, within within a few years, you know, you won't have to do that anymore because the infrastructure will be there. But um, it goes without saying that you know you can't no one wants to deploy infrastructure that's not going to be used because, um, you know, we all know what daily mail headlines that creates, you know, char- yeah, charging yeah. point used 10 times in a year sort of thing. And you think, well, you know, you've got to deploy infrastructure that you know is going to be used. So it's a, it's a delicate balancing act as the market's, you know, growing to put, to put infrastructure where it's needed and going to be used, you know, not just by one man and his dog, you know, politely, but, 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 you know, a number of people. Um, and, you know, as, yeah, you know, we're confident as the market grows, you know, we've got we've got a huge um huge pipeline. We've got um a couple of really good um you know, good things to announce soon about the deployment, you know, the, the quicker deployment of charging. Um and, you know, we're we're confident that the market will grow. You know, it's a bit like the early days of petrol stations, you know, when we all made that transition from you know, I think it was about someone was saying the other day, it's about five years. We went from having you know, there were sort of tens and thousands of well, hundreds of thousands of horses on the road and you know, we we kind of made the switch from horses to proliferation of cars within within a matter of years and i think we forget that and we forget how quickly we adapted to to the motor car and actually there's no reason to think that we can't as a society and you know the investment community and everyone else can't sort of adapt to, to this change as well it's um it's not it's not it is it genuinely isn't rocket science no <laughs> no
0: okay Then well, i think this is a good point um to move on to there are many many statements brackets myths uh to do with Mm. uh evs and the infrastructure and things like this um and i see sometimes you tweet out and i i can just feel a sense of frustration at some of the these things are being peddled again and again and again when they're not true do you have um one or two particular favorites that you can help shed light on so that people don't repeat them
1: um, well, yeah, I mean, I, I think the first thing. Um, I mean, uh, it's interesting. The na- National Grid, um, famous, oh, it's all going to fall uh, famous, over, isn't fairly, it? fairly famously, put out a, an insight report saying, you know, giving giving almost three three scenarios. They kind of gave their slow uptake scenario, the realistic uptake scenario, and then the ridiculously high uptake scenario where we all buy an EV tomorrow. Um, and and I think that all got blown out of proportion by the media. and the National Grid kind of wrote it back and they said, look, we, you know, we, that that's misrepresenting what we said. Um, and, and, you know, the comment they've made is basically they are confident that the UK's energy grid, electricity grid, will be able to cope with the expected uptake of EVs right up till 2050. So, you know, National Grid, who knows a lot more about the, the, the energy grid than I do, and probably most of the people that are making comments about it, um, are, are pretty confident. And, and, you know, with with the right smart charging incentives in, in, in place, you know, they're not sort of unduly concerned about uh, what we need to do. Um, so I think the energy piece is, is important to kind of make that point. And it's not us saying that, it's National Grid. And they, as I say, if anyone wants to challenge their, uh, their thinking and say so they know more than National Grid, they're very welcome to. Um, yeah, because there's, there's
0: things like the... Yeah not you know the whole country doesn't plug in at exactly the same second
1: no exactly and i, and I you think know, you know, know
0: and there's there's things like that that people seem to forget yeah. and, you know and not only that but then we're not all chucking a kettle on at exactly yeah. the same second you know the, there's many layers to it all yeah. again we go back to you know perhaps what i was saying before about there's a there's a if we look at the big picture the whole picture rather than just a selected element mm. you know it, it's just very easy to make a make a headline
1: it is yeah i mean i think uh, you know with and, ma- and
0: that's a bit frustrating yeah. i mean were, yeah, I, like, I find it frustrating looking in
1: yeah yeah and, and you yeah, know the majority we know the majority of charging happens you know overnight and there, there are people with off street parking who already make evs work very well you know long term you know there's going to be far more um, deployment of charging infrastructure for people that don't have off street parking so that's going to you know that's going to sort of die down as an issue as well um but you know it's very simple to shift the, the good thing is that you know the good thing is about sort of overnight ev charging which is going to form the majority, you know, ad infinitum, there'll, there'll never be a point where home charging, overnight home charging does not form the majority of charging for EVs in this country. It, yeah. will, it will always be the majority. Um, is the good thing about that is that almost everyone plugging in doesn't need the car until the next morning. Um, yeah. So so you can easily incentivize the shift to, to start charging later. Now that doesn't necessarily mean you have to actually walk out in your slippers at midnight and plug in. It means that you can plug in when you get home, but actually your charger doesn't actually start charging until midnight or, or 11 30 or whatever
0: and that's very yeah, easy you set to do a because, timer or something Yeah, exactly like that, and, and, we, and yeah. you
1: know the, the cars are smarter than the grid at this point because you know every <laughs> every electric car i'm aware of has the ability to to smart charge effectively to be programmed to charge off peak i mean i do that with mine and i'm not even incentivized to do so at the moment so that's very easy to to initiate and actually it's not going to be an issue because most people are quite will be quite happy with their their car charging overnight in that way you know, it's not like if you said to everyone, "Well, actually, can you all not stick the kettle on at, you know, eight o'clock when you know the program comes on or whatever?" Because we want you all to make tea at midnight instead. Well, that's not going to really wash, is it? So yeah. the good thing is that all the increased demand for EVs, the vast majority of it can be pushed into that real true overnight period rather than the early evening without without much issue. So again, that's that's not a concern. I, I think the other, the other, the other. I mean, the other significant myth, I'd say. Um, well, there's I mean, there's two things. It's interesting that the range piece has really fallen away. I mean, five years ago, um, you yeah, know, I remember talking to to people outside the industry, and they all said, "Well, EVs are, are never going to take off because they can only do 50 miles of range." It's very rare now that you we've got the EV Experience Centre that we operate up in Milton Keynes. Very rare now to um, to speak to anyone, any member of the public who really has an issue with the range. Now, it's it's more to do with you know, can I buy one for for less than 10 grand in the used market? Those kind of questions. It's it's less about mm. range, but I mean, things like the connector issue is um, is a common, common, still a common thing. I find bizarre that people still say there's, you know, there's 13 different connectors, and I simply say there's not. You know, there's one in there's one in, there's one type of, of common EV connector in Europe. You know, and uh, and you know your public charging cables, we like to call it, will connect to that that Type 2 socket. And actually, the rapid charging things no harder to understand than knowing if you have a petrol or diesel car. You know, if you if you drive up, you know, once you once you know what your car fuel your car takes you know you pull up to the pump and you either reach for the the green hose or the black hose and it's the same thing yeah. you you pull up to a rapid charger and you either reach for the, the ccs connector or the chadamere or the ac so it's not it's not again as an issue in the way that some people you know say well i'm not going to buy an ev until it's all standardized and i say well it, it is it is standardized you know it's standardized mm. already so so yeah th- those are those are a couple of the ones that i think are are ones that i always sigh about when i hear them <laughs>
0: <laughs> maybe go and kick a cat later yeah quietly. not not a cat
1: maybe a, maybe a wall or something but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um,
0: what do you think can be done to to help people realize that evs are actually a viable option for
1: them well a the, very simple answer try one um I, okay. I think the you know we as i say we've um we operate the UV experience center up in Milton Keynes on behalf of Milton Keynes council. And that was a a center that was effectively um, dreamt up by, by us along with Milton Keynes council as our partner to, to say, well, you know, what, what is the, what is the way that you actually really push the market? And it's not actually about creating spreadsheets and showing someone that they're going to spend two or three P per mile rather than 20 P a mile. It's actually that you get people to try one because, Almost invariably, when someone tries an EV, um, they like it or they love it. You know, they, there's very rare that you get, uh, you know, someone getting out of an EV for the first time, whether they're a passenger or a driver, and sort of shrugging their shoulders and saying, "Yeah, it was okay." You, know, you tend, mm. you tend to get a view of either complete astonishment or, you know, real excitement. You know, and and yeah, there'll be people who just go, "Now I don't like it. I want, you know, I want a noisy V8," and that's fine. Um, but actually you know the the simplest way to get people to actually embrace them is to try them and once people try them they very quickly turn from skeptic to to supporter i find
0: Mm -hmm. do you think um the motor industry can do a better job of communicating um with with the public do you think it needs to i i think it
1: probably does i think the dilemma for i mean i think that realistically the only brand that has a very easy job of this is tesla um i think other brands i I can appreciate the the challenge that comes with trying to push electric vehicles at the same time as you are also trying to sell a range of other technologies because it's then very hard to you know it's always sometimes hard to promote the benefits of evs without necessarily sounding like you're bashing petrol or diesel to be to be blunt mm. you know if, you, if you're talking yeah. about zero emissions with an ev that implies that obviously there are emissions from from a petrol or diesel car and, and you know you if you're saying that it's a good thing to avoid them then it must be a bad thing to to emit them so it's a it's a challenge you know i appreciate it's a challenge for brands that that um that that, that sell a variety of products um but i think it's clear that it's the trajectory of travel now i think you know that every brand. Is, is getting on board with EVs. Um, every brand's got huge EV rollout plans. He's working on battery technology and so on and so forth. So it's clear they're going to be the, the primary, you know, primary kind of um, technology of choice in the medium, if not long term. Um, you know, if we all sort of, if a significant proportion of us switch to EVs, you know, in the next 20 years, and suddenly, you know, the price of a hydrogen car drops to 25 grand you know it's five p.m. pmr through fuel with hydrogen and there's hydrogen filling stations everywhere then maybe maybe we'll all go down that route too but i think you know that seems unlikely to me so it seems more likely that we will stick with the the source of fuel that is abundant everywhere across the uk already and that's electricity um and and, and move that way
0: yeah no i i can i can see hydrogen working uh, alongside but not necessarily uh being as dominant uh, i think it i think it will probably be something that is used more in industrial uh applications
1: yeah i, I think commercial vehicles i, I, I can are see a, that we're yeah, a potential, we're, yeah. potential way to deploy hydrogen quite successfully i you know the the simple fact is at the moment for the cost of one hydrogen pump you know you can probably put 50 rapid charges in the ground so i'd, I'd sort of you know i'm not sure you know, my, my, I'm very pro-hydrogen from an environmental point of view, um, you know, as long as we can find a way of producing it less energy intensively, um, mm. distributing it, you know, cheaply enough and obviously, you know, setting up infrastructure that, that works in terms of the economics behind it. But um, but at the moment, I just think it's, you know, it, it's on the fringes and it's, it's still not truly, truly commercially viable.
0: No, no, it needs more, more of the R&D mm. spent on it. Spent on it. Okay. Um I think this is a, a point where I'm going to move on to the quick fire questions. Sure. Um, so if you're this be this I think these first two could be quite interesting actually. Um, but the first one is what currently excites you about the motoring world?
1: Um well, I, I think I kinda of covered it before, but I think I think for me it's the you know, electric vehicles are the thing that excite me. And I think, you know, I think the ease at which you can convert someone from being you know, a sceptic to a supporter just by making them try one is incredibly exciting because it's a way, you know, it's a bit like when everyone tried the iPhone, you know, you could suddenly get people to want one just by having a play with one. So I think that's, that's, mm. that's, that is really exciting to me that they're not this sort of, you know, this sort of, um, you know, unwanted technology now. They're very easy to convince people about.
0: Yeah. It's, it's not, um, or maybe the, the perception of, being supportive of the environment is not what it used to be.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I think, Uh, I I think
0: that's helped. I think the, the public perception that it's not, you know, people who knit their own muesli and uh, things like that Mm. are the ones, you know, advocating or not even advocating, just, just, shouting at everyone saying you must do this otherwise the end of the world that isn't the way the message is coming out now so I think that helps allow people to consider things yeah because no one likes being shouted at and being told that they're doing bad things
1: yeah (laughs) Uh, well I think the I think the environmental debates moved you know I think the air quality debate is useful because it it personalizes the environment for everyone because mm -hmm. air quality is important to all of us because we all breathe air you know climate change that's happening the other side of the planet to a lot of people they couldn't give a stuff about but i think something that's happening yeah. to you and your kids is is you know is going to is going to pull on everyone's heartstrings hopefully so
0: definitely brings it home mm. definitely brings it home yeah okay then uh,
1: so what currently worries
0: you about the motion world
1: i i think touch screens i think i yes. think touch screens are <laughs> uh, uh, genuinely something that something that you, know, you are my favorite I'm guest not, i'm not sure it gives <laughs> me sleep it doesn't quite give me sleepless nights but i, I do think this I do think the level of which we are relying on touchscreens in cars now is is genuinely, I mean, I I'm sort of half laughing about it, but I genuinely think it is a little bit worrying because I think there are, you know, there are safety issues with them. Um, having, having driven a lot of cars with big touchscreens, small touchscreens, et cetera. Um, I think there's a, there's a place for the buttons still for sure.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree. Um, what worries me about the touchscreens is the distraction factor, but also the, uh, Again, this is anecdotal. There is no scientific mm. uh, scientific uh, investigation into this. But I see people saying, you know, it went wrong. You know, I, I had to do a hard reset and things like that. Yeah. And if you are only reliant for all or the majority of your uh, interaction with the car through, that, through the one or two screens, then that, that makes it very hard to, to use it. But on the other hand, I understand why they, they are trying to go. You know, OEMs are trying to go down this route as well because of costs and parts and some of the uh, controls we only touch once or twice and then we don't touch again. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think it's it needs to be. Yeah, there needs to be a mix. Yeah. It needs it definitely need to, to consider the use and when. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. I don't want to get on. <laughs> I don't want to take over your no? you, chatting with you with my hobby horse or one of my ho- many hobby horses. Okay then. Um, so, what has been your favourite car to drive, and why was that?
1: Um, I, I sort of part of me thinks I should say Tesla Roadster because you know of my current profession. Um, I, I think I'm going to be. And
0: that's not the fantasy one that was released. No, no. I'm. Uh, I, I'm this this, is, an this is an actual, real. an actual real one years ago. Yeah, the, the Mark One, as it
1: was, which was a great hit. I think. I think genuinely, and I. I, I'm not, I know. I know it's not an electric car, but I think. Um, I think it was a. I was very, very lucky enough. I'd spent about a week in a Morgan Aero Coupe. And I think that was, um, I mean, if, I think if you accept the premise that driving a car is, you know, often more than about getting from A to B, um, I think that was a, you know, it's an astonishing car from my perspective of being able to, you know, provide an experience which is actually very civilised given what kind of vehicle it is, but uh, but also can be, you know, fairly sort of visceral. Um, and, it, and it kind of felt more like it had been created than actually engineered, if that makes sense, with a sort of capital E, you know, Mm. it felt very much more organic. And that's sort of a cliche, obviously, given there's a wood in it and stuff. But it it did feel, you know, like it had been crafted, yeah, built and created and crafted rather than made by robots. You know, and I think that was that was special. Um, And I think, you know, you know, we are we are going to run out of petrol one day. And, you know, I think a bit of me thinks that, you know, the last drop of it should probably be used in a Morgan. (laughs) <laughs> well, uh, sorry
0: for everybody listening and, and to you, Tom, to bang on about our trip around Britain, but on the first day, we were travelling through mid-Wales on the weekend of the Morgan meeting, mm. they had their big thing, and we pulled into uh, uh, a car park to charge while we had lunch, a, a supermarket car park, uh, and a couple of them came in behind us, and it was just wonderful to see, You you can't help but look at them and smile, I don't mm. think. And it it looks like it's quite a a theatrical event.
1: Yeah, I, that,
0: I and it, and it is an event. You get in one of those, and it is an event. Yes.
1: Yeah. I, I doubt a Morgan owner has ever not been let out of a side turning fairly fairly quickly. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. so yeah. I think, yeah. <laughs> so I, th- I think I think the, as much as I, you know, you'd think I'd probably go and buy every electric car on the planet. I think if I think if I, you know, my numbers come up in the lottery, I think I think the Aero pay is probably the one the one internal combustion engine car that I might have to go and buy <laughs> if I could find one. But yeah.
0: Yes, quite. Uh, Okay, then, so what has been your least favourite car to drive, and why was that?
1: Um, Years ago, I actually drove the, I don't actually remember the Think um, electric car, um, which was a a sort of a a fairly horrific creation. Um, But they did a, a racing, and I inverted commas, racing version of it, which was for a special um, sort of thing called the ev cup which was an ev only sort of race and again inverted commas i'm not sure race was quite the right word for it but um it was a pretty hateful thing um, and i drove that around millbrook uh, once and that was obviously not on the public road but it, it genuinely felt mm. like it was all going to fall apart around me and although it was an ev i'd certainly wouldn't recommend that to anyone
0: <laughs> okay um well you've possibly just answered this with the question before but
1: what car
0: would you like to own next
1: well, I mean, I, as I say, I've, you know, I've got a company car at the moment. I think my next, you know, I, I probably won't necessarily. I mean, I, uh, me and my other half own a, a Renault Pio and I think um, uh, that she drives, and I think um, we, we're probably going to replace that with a, with a Zoe at some point. Um, mm. But I think I think my next company car, I'd, I'd love it to be, I think, a the Nissan Leaf. I think that's a, you know, we, we had it um, at the UK sort of debut at the EV Experience, I took Milton Keynes the first time it was sort of seen in the UK officially, and that was a, yeah, the reception it got there was, was incredible. You know, we have people. We well, I
0: think the design moved it on so far.
1: Absolutely, but also, you know, the range. You know, the, the, the real world range it's going to have. I think is it will be a game changer for the sort of fleet and company car sector, which we all know, you know, is what really drives the overall car market. Um, mm. So, I think I think that I think if I if I if I end up sort of moving from the i3 to the Nissan Leaf, I think that will be. Yeah, I'll be quite happy with that.
0: Okay. Uh, what is your favourite road to drive on?
1: so it's probably a hugely cliched choice this um i suspect someone's already said it i i love the the a4069 which goes over the Brecon beacons um and, and mm-hmm. has a nice sort of couple of switchbacks and great views i think that's a stunning road um so it's probably that but i think in i think general observation is probably any road i know um in the in <laughs> that i think you know to be you know to i think you can you can always be more confident on the road that you know and are familiar with so i think that's sort of a General point that you're not often an unfamiliar road doesn't often become your favourite, and it has to be pretty special to suddenly become your favourite. I think mm,
0: that's a good point. That is a good point. Uh, what is the most pointless optional extra you've had the misfortune to experience? Um,
1: I think I think a lot of self parking technologies. In my and this is a personal opinion, obviously. I, I suspect they may be helpful to some people, but I my 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 view on them is that I think it's probably always faster. For a human to park a car than it is a machine. you know um, mm. I've, I've, I just think they're terribly slow, <laughs> and I think I think you know reversing camera is fine. The guides on the screen maybe if you want them, but I think the idea that you, you know, sort of take your hands off the wheel and say right now park yourself, I just I can't quite get my head around that. I think that humans are probably um, always going to be better to, able to park a car quicker, and if you if you can't, then then probably go and have some more driving lessons. <laughs>
0: It's a polite way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> okay then. Um, penultimate question, which is, who do you think I should speak to
1: after you? Well, uh, and I know I, I think I asked you about this. I think the I think uh, someone that I think has got one of the most fascinating stories to tell, and is also an absolutely humble individual, is um, is a major James or Jim Cameron um, of, of Mission Motorsport fame. Um, I was fortunate enough to. Uh, have a presentation from him at a at an event uh, a year or two ago and just absolutely fascinating insight into his work and the work in Mission Motorsport and I think um it'd be a really great guest to have on to, to talk about his story um and sort of why he's doing what he's doing because it it made me quite emotional and I think he doesn't personally I don't think he realizes the impact that he's he's personally had on the lives of a lot of people
0: no he, he is definitely on my uh my fantastically mm. uh, aggressively titled hit list, which is just a spreadsheet. Um, <laughs> he's definitely somebody I want to talk to. Cause I, I, I agree with you. I think what he has done and what his, um, organization do is just fantastic. Uh, and I was so happy that I, I managed to get across to the race of remembrance this mm. year. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Cause it was, it was just a, a thoroughly amazing event. Um, uh, and it was fantastic to see that up close um so yes i i will now upgrade my badgering <laughs> to uh to the uh to the next level it may involve me changing the light bulb on the uh warning but yes i will get on to that i, I really do want to chat to him and i think that's an excellent choice um okay well this is the the, the last question um really which is what are the best ways for people to follow what you do
1: uh, well, I, mean, I guess on a personal level, I'm, I'm an I'm over user of Twitter, almost certainly. Um, so they're welcome to, to follow me on, on there, um, and um, and you know generally sort of keep an eye out for, for Charge Master in the media. But um, yeah, Twitter is interesting. I think, um, as abhorrent as I find his election, I think that Trump gain you know Trump Trump's rise to prominence in the U.S. was you know showed the, the power of Twitter, and obviously not necessarily always for the good. But I think it showed that although it's um, has its challenges from a revenue and profitability point of view and all that kind of stuff. I think it's still a highly current platform and it's a great comms platform. So yeah, I, I do do use Twitter quite a lot.
0: Okay, well I'll have your Twitter handle uh and also that of Charge Master and uh, the website link to Charge Master in the show notes. Fab. So um this just leaves me to say thank you so much for coming on. I've had a fascinating chat and I could talk to you for hours and hours uh, to the point where you may fall asleep and not wish to speak to me ever again, talking about EVs and what else we could do uh, and um, what the future holds and things like that. But I think it's an incredibly exciting sector and um, good luck with sticking in more chargers because uh, I think that will help make people realise as much as anything that it, it's, it's a very viable technology that is applicable to them now.
1: Well, like, likewise, and, and many thanks for, for having me thanks Andrew
0: thanks once again to Tom for coming on Rearview and chatting to me I hope you found our conversation as fascinating as I did if you want to suggest someone I should ask to come on this show please do get in touch if you use the hashtag RearviewPod we'll be guaranteed to see it here in Motoring Podcast Towers if you'd like to get in touch with me directly search for Crack Windscreen on Twitter and if you'd like to keep up to date with motoring news opinions and car reviews go try out the sister show which is the Motoring Podcast Remember, you can support everything we do at the Motoring Podcast in a couple of ways. Please go to motoringpodcast.com forward slash support to see what they are. I would also really appreciate it if you could tell others about this show. I want as many people as possible to hear the stories of the great people who I get to come on here. So until next time, that was Tom Callow. I've been Andrew Clues and safe motoring.